Hello, everyone, and welcome to a special Sunday edition of To the Moon, Allison, where we'll be talking about the best and the brightest in science fiction, speculative fiction, fantasy, and romance. I'm your host, Allison Martine Hubbard. I'm an author, author of contemporary fantasy, contemporary fiction, contemporary romance, and all sorts of genres that I'm still figuring out. I'm so thrilled to be joined today by internationally best-selling author, Shelley Parker Chan, author of she Who Became the Sun, beautiful book here, and I would love to talk to her all about this gorgeous book, including the fact that it is a historical fantasy, which is kind of a misunderstood genre and one that's been tossed around. But first, welcome, Shelley, and thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I don't think we've ever had a diplomat on the show before. <laughs> yeah, I was like the least diplomatic <laughs> diplomat ever, so <laughs> I'm not a good poster child. Well, I would love to hear what it means to be an undiplomatic or least diplomatic diplomat, but you're definitely one of the best authors I've gotten to read, at least in recent years, and I'm so privileged to have you here, and just your journey to getting to be internationally best-selling author here, we're just so happy to have you. So could you tell us a little, about, a little bit about how this book got started? It was a really long journey. So uh, publishing is perhaps one of the slowest industries there is. Um, and it just came out of frustration. I'm like a spite-powered writer and I tend to like be like, there's something I want to fix. You know, I'm going to write a story about it. Uh, and about 10 years ago, a group of friends and I were having dinner together and they're all writers. And we just really had one of those like rant sessions where we're like, man, I can't find the book I want to read. You know, something that's really juicy and full of like a Freudian like id and um <laughs> and in my case I really wanted something that felt like one of those Chinese historical tv dramas they're really addictive they're 80 episodes long and they're full of like romance and adventure and backstabbing and tragedy yes. and they're just really fun and I was like man I can't find those in English anywhere so I'm gonna write one of my own and had I known how hard it was to write a book I you know, might not have gone in with such a gung-ho attitude. So uh, it was a long journey for sure. Well, I think if you hadn't had that attitude, you may not have gotten it done because this this book reflects all of that, that gung-ho attitude and wanting that juicy drama that goes through and spans years, so 80 episodes easily. I mean, you're probably gonna have to recast people as they age, all of that stuff. Although I will have to take issue with the fact that you're probably gonna have a hard time finding a lead who is well, willing to have themselves described as looking like a cricket. Because I, I could not <laughs> stop laughing at the fact, for those who have not had a chance to read the book yet, the main character is described as not an attractive girl and then later young woman, but looks kind of like a cricket. So I'm not going to ask you to dream cast this because I don't want you physically throwing anybody under the casting bus. Of, yeah, I think you're not all that attractive. But you look kind of like a book. <laughs> <laughs> the historical figure was famously ugly. He was like yes. the ugliest man alive. Uh, and I don't know if I should say this or not, but actually... Yes the physical appearance of that character is based on someone I knew who I respected hugely. <laughs> and, you know, I, I think that person makes it work. They are like amazing. They're kind of like slightly butch, but 
you know, very like wiry as <laughs> so I was going for that. So I actually didn't mean cricket in a totally negative way. Well, but. most most American audiences will hear cricket and just go Jiminy. So they're going to go animated and about oh. this big, which is not what you want for someone commanding respect or scaring people with their power or their inner power or their mandate from heaven, any of that. So the fact that you picked it on a person you actually respect, I love it. <laughs> Have you told that well, I suppose like the character is supposed to be small and like, you know, she has quite like brown skin and, you know, people underestimate her for a lot of like the fact of her size. So, well, yeah, cricket. I'm 5'2", so I, I like the idea of small and underestimated for being tiny, but hopefully no one's called me a cricket yet. <laughs> and I hope probably nobody ever does, but I've been called a lot of things. Not that kind of bug. I've bugged people, but that's that's a little different. But have you have you had any talks about getting this to be an 80 episode anything? <laughs> I think there's only material in it for one season. So uh you never underestimate what screenwriters can do. They will drag stuff That's out. That's true. <laughs> and it's a whole different skill. Um yeah, I don't know. If anyone has a spare 300 million dollars burning a hole in their pocket, you know, feel free to contact me. You never But then know. like Mulan tanked and then like yeah. well, there's a little bit of interest and after Mulan people were a bit like, "Hey, they're like, well, maybe not. However, and this is more modern set and obviously a very different grounding, but uh, Shang-Chi is doing pretty well so far. So there you is go. doing so well. Love, loving Shang-Chi. And I know that I'm going, is this just a theme for me that I go from, I watched Shang-Chi last Sunday. I'm interviewing you today. I'm going, this is the theme now. It's Chinese, just Chinese September. I'm taking it. But I love oh, that. I, I haven't said, seen Shang-Chi. I'm dying. You haven't. Okay. Has it not opened in Australia yet? Because for those who don't know. We're in lockdown. The theaters are shut. <laughs> so, so it's just like. It goes back and forth between that we'll release it live and then screens only. Because I think it's only in screens. Is that right? You can't see it at home yet? Yeah. We're, we're hanging out for October 18th. So that date is circled on my calendar. I think Disney Plus. See, Shang-Chi. <laughs> October 18th. <laughs> Tony Leung is like, like the hero. Like he's like you know, the figure that I always looked up to is this like amazing Asian actor. I'm like, oh, he's in a Marvel movie. If they do him dirty, I'm going to like actually commit <laughs> murder on someone. But then all the reports have come back that no, he was amazing. like one of the best parts of the all, movie. All of it was amazing. I, I could easily do a whole podcast on that, but I would like to focus on your book, which I love that you wrote out of spite because I kid you not, that's the number one reason I think most people should write books. <laughs> And I have often said I wrote my romances out of spite because I read a romance I was arc reading for someone else. And it made me so angry. I wanted to hurl it across the room. And I thought this isn't how the books should be. This is not how this is not how women should be written, especially by other women. And that's kind of what got me going. So I would not have guessed that this was written out of spite because, okay, there's a lot of spite in here and a lot of people rolling with stuff. I mean, I will say the fact that you've come out of the gate addressing gender issues just immediately i just embrace that so hard with the idea for those this isn't much of a spoiler but it starts with a famine and the idea being that if you're a little girl you're expendable and you don't you don't need food because if you've got a, a daughter and a son who are you feeding and that that just hit me on a visceral level in a way that i can't remember being hit by any work of fiction and i know because it's a historical fiction I know that's something that was pulled from reality, that that was something that was the reality for a lot of little girls all over the world and probably still is in a lot of places. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, the spite. Like definitely I was taking uh, aim at the Confucian patriarchy. You know, I am from the diaspora and I'm mixed race, so I only kind of like got this 
sideways, but you know, the culture is very, you know, the, the son is upheld as the continuation of the family line and the son is privileged and the son is looked to as the one who will do the great things. And I, you know, took also aim at the chosen one trope that is really common in fantasy. Yes. Who gets to be the chosen one? Is it the boy? Well, you know what? Screw you. <laughs> in this book, that boy is, you know, not going to get to be the chosen one. And it's also spite in the sense of I got really, you know, it comes out of those gender struggles that, you know, some of us have faced more strongly than others. Um where, you know, if you're constantly being perceived by society as a gender that you feel like you're not, uh, it does build up a lot of rage inside you. And, well, and uh, you recently handle I read that, an amazing book. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and you handle that not just through one character but two and coming at it from opposite ways. I just want to get back to a couple of comments that popped up real fast that Laura Jacko would like to have a bumper sticker made of done out of spite. And then I think everything you're saying is probably going to be said this way, but Jennifer Ann Gordon would like to have, you say, commit murder more because it sounds so classy in your accent so you can get away with that that's fine but i just <laughs> i just i i loved that you had two different point of view characters that both were coming from a place of the way society sees me because of my body and that role of my body in relation to gender is going to impact how people treat me and i'm going to have to not just accept it but kind of rally against it and i'm assuming that was an intentional choice but was it an intentional choice to have two people who were both coming at it going, I am not a man, but I'm not being treated like a man, but society's ruling me against this man standard, if that makes sense. I don't know if the question even made sense, but you have a character who, spoiler alert, one of the main characters is a eunuch. So most people only know eunuchs from Game of Thrones. That's not, they didn't come up with it in Game of Thrones. They've been around for a long time. And then the other character is someone who is a female who is taking on the destiny of a male. That's a, a good thumbnail of it. Hmm. I, you know, the character of Oyang, who is the eunuch, didn't exist in history. And like, he just came out of my brain because I guess I really wanted a character like that. Um, and he came out of the necessity of like, I really wanted a mirroring. I think the interesting thing in any book is when you have you know, there's so many books out there where there's only one queer character, there's only one Asian character, and then they have to be everything. Yes. I find it hugely freeing when you have a story and you get to have many different characters who are reflecting that central theme from slightly different angles, and they don't have to be all things. They just get to be themselves, and they reflect a little slice in their own very individual way. So I really wanted two characters. Um, in fact, I think there are more, like a there is another character who is sort of like a very feminine scholar figure and he also struggles with masculinity and what it means to be someone who is viewed as, you know, non-ideal in a system that you know, privileges this warrior male in this very rigid patriarchal system. So you have these three characters, although two, I guess, mirror each other more closely. Um, and I wanted to explore what it is to be in between in this kind of system and how that can be a strength and how, you know, depending on who you are and how you've come up in the world, it can be a weakness as well. Like Oyang is someone who's had his masculinity denied. Like everyone looks at him and sees like this kind of girl um, and they demean him for it. You know, you're not a real man. And like inside he's like, I am a man. Um, and just that, that builds up this rage and he clings to toxic masculinity because yes. it's, you know, the thing that he feels is his. And he can't step outside 
that. Whereas I wanted to compare and contrast that to someone like my main protagonist, uh, Ju, who is you know, assigned female at birth, but feels non-binary. And in that non-binariness, you know, it finds a strength. Um, you know, her connection back to that female past where she was raised as a girl, you know, is a strength because she can see the world from a perspective that the men in power have never seen. And she but can she can't get caught yes. doing it though, which I love that you yeah. brought up. It's like, oh, this is not a skill that Chu Ba should know. So um, I'm just going to pretend I know nothing about basket weaving and go back over here and just put my head down. I love that because I think nowadays, even so we have some things assigned, oh, that's girly. Oh, only boys do that. But the idea that even just being aware of a certain skill could out her in the disguise that she's taken on I, I love that you approached it that way because we don't necessarily think of it that way. And some of that was more prevalent in the society back then, but it still exists now. Yeah. That's like a knowledge or a way of being in the world that can gender you, um, that could out you against your will for sure. I didn't well, want to make it too much about the fear of being outed. Yeah. Um, so I think like you is a little less, like there are a lot of narratives of girls dressing as boys where the central tension in the story is oh my god will they be outed and will it be catastrophic um and I kind of wanted to steer away from that it a didn't. little bit yeah and I, I liked how it was it became less and less as the narrative went on like I think it was a bigger part in the very beginning and then as it went on as more people found out who Chuchamba was it was less of a oh okay you know oh you've known all right let's move on then rather than oh no I'm gonna have to go through my entire life doing this but there was also the flip side of it, not so much worried about what other people think, but this idea of what will heaven think, that the idea of, oh, if I want this for myself, am I going to step beyond what heaven knows? And just the idea that heaven doesn't know which person you are because of which name you claim. I love that. I love that the conceit to that of, well, you know, heaven doesn't really know who that is other than the name. And no one's mourned that ghost because someone's still using their name. I love that the idea of the names becoming so overpowering that the destiny becomes tied to the name rather than the destiny tied to something like the soul or the physical body. Do you want to speak to that at all? Like, was that an intentional choice or did that just kind of develop out of the narrative? I think names are important and, you know, a large part of transness is often get to choose who you're going to be and you get to choose your new name. And, you know, the story starts very deliberately with a girl who doesn't have a name. Like, well, maybe she does have a name, but we don't know it. So she's just a girl. She is yep. defined purely by her gender. And then she takes a name that isn't hers. It's her brother's name. And she has to be, live within that skin, live within that name. And it's not really hers. And the fact that it's not hers and she could be found out is a, a huge source of fear. So fear is what powers her for that first part of the narrative. And I think then we move into the arc of, you know, why do I have to be afraid all the time? Can I actually be myself and not be afraid? You know, can I take that last step outside of this, this skin that I'm in into my true self? And, you know, it is a big decision point when she steps out of that name, the brother's name and takes a name for herself. And like, although this is like set in a sort of fantastical China, you know, people did choose their own names. Um, you know, Chinese naming was very complicated. People had many names, but you could choose your adult like name that you were known by and it could have a meaning uh, that was very important to you. And the emperor, um, Zhu Yuanzhang, 
the, the historical figure, you know, he chose a set of names, a name that was his true adult name and a name that people would call him by as a courtesy. When you put them together, you know, they spelled out this badass, like, uh, it was like, I am the downfall of the Yuan dynasty, basically. <laughs> you know, it, it was like, you know, my identity is, um, you know, the downfall of the dynasty and I'll make myself emperor and you can't get more badass than that. Well, that's true. And I, I have several friends who have recently or within the last decade or so chosen new names as they've come out as a trans individual. And I don't think any of them chose names that were like, I'm taking down society and I'm going to go back to them now and say, you know, you could have aimed higher. You, you couldn't have just done something that you really like and feels like you because yours should have been like spelling out, destroy the patriarchy. And, and you know, you missed an opportunity. <laughs> it's a bit easier with Chinese names, I think. You've it might like, be. It a few more be. characters to play with. Possibly. It wouldn't, it wouldn't fit on the bottom of a book if you, if it's spelled out, destroy the patriarchy all down there, but it could, you could just kind of use that as a nickname. We'll go with it. I mean, even the subtitle of the book is revenge of the gender queers. I always I like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you also mentioned that the character, the, the one who starts out as a no name character and then takes a brother's name is she's, she's gender queer, not just, oh, she's pretending to be a boy, but she's also, I don't know, would you describe her as ace? I oh, short answer yes. Okay. Uh, like I generally try and steer away from contemporary labels because one of the joys of working in that historical fantasy space is you don't have to use contemporary labels and identities, and you can be a bit blurry around the edges, and that's really fun to me. I like that. You know, when people come to me like, "Oh, your book is lesbians," I'm like, "Not really lesbians." No, you know, <laughs> don't don't put the label on. Just call them queer. Let them be who they want to be. Um, you know, Drew has a conflicted relationship with her body. Um, I don't think that's the whole source of her aceness. It's not just a dysphoria. Um, I did want to write someone who was somewhere on the ace spectrum. And uh, she's you got other fish to fry. Uh, and I <laughs> yeah, she of, does. She has whole nation. Other people in the narrative are very yes. caught up in uh, their sexual desires. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I – I kind of wanted to see someone who, you know, that was a, a secondary concern. Yeah. On her priority list of, okay, what am I doing today? It really didn't rank. I know there was at some point, there was a line along the lines of not planning on getting married, but glad they did. <laughs> so it was like, yeah, all right, sure. <laughs> like, re really? Uh, okay. Just a checklist. Uh, okay. I did that. And then you also have monks. And I know that in Western society, I don't know any monks who are allowed to break the vows of celibacy. So maybe it's very different in fantastical historical China as far as monks who were, well, Chu's best friend. He uh, he was basically the village, just the, the village gigolo, more or less. He's like all the village he's girls. He's a boy. I mean, he's very hot and he's very nice, but he got <laughs> laid quite a lot. Yeah, right. <laughs> I, I think like we can read that. The past is him because I, I would like to help with the casting of that character. <laughs> what do you have in mind for him? Yeah, I'd like to hear more about that character. Yes, go on. <laughs> yeah, no, hot best friend is a staple. Um, I think monks are people like anyone else. And, you know, we have this image of the Buddhist monk, but for sure there are Buddhist monks who broke the rules. <laughs> and I've read a few books about <laughs> even like you know, actual uh, scholarly texts about what the life of monks is like. And I'm like, oh, yeah, you know, had a mistress down in the village. It's all good. And where do the rest of the monks go? Yep. All right. That seems fine. Go back to your bathing day. It's a very special day, bathing day. <laughs> well, and I, I loved the idea, getting back to some of the biggest themes that you deal with, 
beyond gender, beyond identity, there's this idea of destiny. And getting back to mentioning that chosen one trope, I'm assuming you read books where you just got tired of the chosen one trope, or was that part of that spite? Or was it, was that just something you're like, well, chosen one fantasy, got to bring it on? Hmm. Yeah, I I didn't actually realize I was writing a rise to power story at the beginning. I'm a romance writer, and I really just thought I was writing some kind of like kind of a romance, and then it didn't it is turn not. out that way. So it took me a while to get into the whole. Oh, it is you know um, a rise to power, and it is about a chosen one. And uh, I've said elsewhere that you know, I didn't actually write this as a fantasy either. Um, it started out as a straight up like historical Chinese TV drama sort of story. It is told in a very fantastical register. You know, it has big cathartic emotions. It's not realistic. And there's a lot of backstabbing and, you know, treachery and stuff. Um, but there wasn't any magic and there wasn't fate and there wasn't destiny, you know, in the sense that are in the books now. It was more, you know, what people believed. You know, they believed that destiny and fate were real and that were guiding their lives in some way. But you didn't necessarily, like, see it. And then as I sold this book to a fantasy imprint, it became much more of a fantasy. That that I believe. Yes. And but but I love the idea and you work through the idea of some people in the book and, and not even necessarily one of your protagonists, because you've got the two point of view characters, some look at destiny as something handed to them, and others look at destiny as something to be grasped and to aspire to and to have to take and earn with every calculated movement because there are people who sit back and it doesn't go well for them who just are like well i am of this lineage and therefore i'm the next up and of course i'm going to rule and then others like chu jungba who are like well if i want this destiny who am i going to have to push over to get it and what am i going to have to do in order to ensure that it happens so i i love that because i feel like i don't often see both versions of destiny presented together in the same narrative like destiny is kind of a fake out in this book. Like I, as I was writing it, you know, I wasn't really thinking of destiny exactly in the mythological sense of, you know, fate. Uh, like in the Chinese myths, it's a little less um, certain than like say Greek fate. In Greek fate, you're always going to get shafted by fate. No matter what you do, <laughs> it's always going to come back around and get you. Yes. Uh, in Chinese mythology, I think if you're a little bit tricky, you can sometimes get around your fate. You can like bribe the guy who writes fate or you can just sort of run away or hide. It's doable. But this book isn't really about that kind of destiny in my mind. It was really more about destiny in the sense of you're born in a a place in the world whether that be like a social class or your gender and you're stuck there so it's about social mobility yes um you know there's some people who are born in a privileged position they feel very entitled you know they're like well this is my place and i will naturally rise according to this particular path like women are born and their path is laid out for them go uh, have babies are uh, considered to stay yeah yeah. Uh, so what the Mongols did is they destroyed social mobility. So, uh, you know, the Chinese were stuck there. <laughs> like, well, what am I going to do now? I can't get educated. I can't rise up. I can't move. Um, yeah, so this book was a little bit more about like a screw you, um, so especially gender as a constraining place. People who are born to a gender, which tells them what they can and can't do. And some people are like, you know what? I'm not going to take it. I'm yes. going to step outside of that gender. I'm going to do what you told me I could never do. Uh, and there are some people who are like, actually, this is my gender and I'm stuck in it and I must take on all the toxic responsibilities 
that society has placed on this gender, like revenge, filial piety, and so forth. You know, he could have let it go, but he didn't. He's like, no, gonna hold on to this with my teeth and then just keep going. I mean, talk about spite, but there, there we go. I mean, but I liked that you had characters who would outright just say some of these things like, I am a woman. No, I don't have choices. And you don't get that because you're a man, because therefore you have choices, but I'm a woman and I don't. And the fact that that conversation was just spelled out, there was no way to go. Yeah, maybe if she just looked at other options, she would have, uh, there are no other options. And I think sometimes as modern readers, we forget that that was the case. I kind of... Mm. I kind of feel like everyone in the book does have options. It comes down to are you willing to bear the consequences? So I guess it's a book about oh, that Buddhist idea of like if you have desire, it's going to cause you suffering is a bit of a backbone theme. Uh, so all these characters have desires. They have like the wants. They want to step outside of their life. It's like, okay, it actually might be possible, but it's going to be really, really hard. And what are you going to do? You know, what consequences are going to bear? Are you willing to do that? It's really scary. It's really uncomfortable. And, you know, that resonates today in a contemporary sense. You want to transition? Well, it's, it's possible. Uh, it's also going to be scary and hard. And But if you want it enough, that is what you'll do. You might feel like you have to do it and you have no other choice. Um, is that fair? It's not fair. But. It would be nice if we all had the same choices that all had good and bad parts rather than, well, you have good choices and mostly bad choices. And the mostly bad choices are the ones that are going to get you what you want out of life. So it's going to suck, but you're going to do it. Oh, well, and I wanted to ask, so you said you got picked up writing more of a historical book with a Chinese drama, and then you got picked up by a fantasy imprint. How did that happen? Oh, so this book didn't really have a very clearly defined genre. Well, actually it does. It has a very clearly defined genre in the Asian sense of the term. It is a historical drama. Um, and in Chinese TV world, that means, like I said before, like, you know, the big emotions, the sweeping you know, battles, a lot of interpersonal squabbles and so forth. Um, like a palace drama, there's intrigue. Yeah. Uh, and that feels like a fantasy to the Western reader. Um, but Western publishing is set up with its own like commercial marketing genres of, you know, a fantasy must have magic or it must be set in a secondary world. It can't just be about the vibes. Um, whereas a historical fiction, um, which very often is now positioned as sort of a women's fiction kind of category. Yeah. Um, and it, it's a lot more historical, historically accurate. Um, it's a little more realistic and low key. It doesn't have the outsized you know, fantasy emotions and events. So this book kind of fell down the middle. It wasn't like one or the other and commercial publishing in the West was like, we love the book. We don't know what it is. Can you make it fit one way or the other? Um, and I was like, man, I come out of fantasy. I come out of romance. I come out of genre. You know, I like cathartic emotions. I don't like realism. You know, I just want people to go, fuck yeah, I'm having a great time reading this book. You know, I don't necessarily want it to be high literature. Um, even though, you know, I do love a metaphor as, uh, you maybe can see, um so tor felt like the right place uh, is a fantasy imprint but they know queerness and they they knew what i was about and that's what was most important to me so uh added some magic not much magic just a, well, a little sprinkling 
And and I love the idea that fantasy doesn't have to all look the same. And that that is disappointing when you hear, okay, from Western standards, it means one of these two things, either big time magic or secondary world, rather than, like you said, those vibes. And as a reader, I love the idea of it feeling like the real world, because for me, the stakes are higher when it feels like people who can't just get out of things by snapping your fingers and everything is fixed or doing a spell and something gets fixed. So there, there is magic in the world as far as some flames, but beyond that, it's not about, Oh look. And then Chu does this spell and everything's fixed or everyone turned into a zombie or something. It felt so real and so personal. And so, like you said, palace intrigue and who's going to turn on who next and who's going to go to what extreme to get what they want, even if it's hurting somebody else that they care about, which to me always feels much more, like the, the stakes become higher and it feels much more relatable because last I checked, I have no magic, not that I've figured out yet. So I'm not going to get out of things by, you know, doing something like this and then something magical happens. It just doesn't work that way. Yeah. I mean, people get stabbed in the book and they do survive. <laughs> I think that's a form of like hand-waving fantasy magic. Like I often explain this genre a bit like it's like Regency romance, you know, Regency romance is a fantasy genre. Actually, you know, it's, it's a shared sandbox we've created where we understand the rules and they're not actually necessarily anything like what life was like in the Regency era. But we like to place stories back there because it feels high stakes and it, everything feels heightened, the drama, the emotions, like what you're playing for. Like, you know, I could be ruined or I could marry a duke, you know. it's um, <laughs> And it's a form of escapism. Yeah. So fantasy vibes. Well, and it's just interesting then that if you would have had the opportunity to present this to an Asian publisher, do you think that they would have been able to handle it differently without putting it on a fantasy shelf and just say it's historical fantasy, but the fantasy element is less important? Or would they still say, oh, yeah, let's go fantasy? Uh, had it been the original version or is it is now? Yeah, even even the original version, because obviously I know you you leaned into that once you're like, OK, we're going fantasy. So let's add some more of that in. And I'm assuming you didn't lose most of the relational aspects or the people's motivations mm. through things. There was just that extra layer there. Yeah, I don't, I don't think this book can back sell back to Asia. Well, not to China or like it is a diaspora work. Uh, you know, I always said like I, I was writing a Chinese TV drama like in my head, but because I'm who I am, it was never going to come out in the same way that someone who's raised in like mainland China would have written a book. It has different concerns, different political viewpoints, just a different way of seeing the world. You know, this book is a mashup of East and West and, you know, it's always going to be slightly too Western for the East and slightly too Eastern <laughs> for the West, you know. That, uh, such are the, you know, travails of the diaspora writer. Um, but, I, you know, I can only be true to myself. So this is, on, on the surface, it looks like a Chinese drama, but the backbone is a Marvel movie. You know, it has that Western hero's journey. It has a lot of the Western tropes as well as the Wuxia Eastern tropes. So it's a strange beast. Um, you know, I don't think it will be bought for translation, you know, in the Asian countries, and that's okay. Like maybe Indonesia or Southeast Asia, I think, uh, could vibe with it. But, you know, China, Taiwan, Hong Kong, they got their own stories. They don't need my westernized version of their stories. 
I, I think there's still readers there who would like it, but what do I, I'm Western. So I go, well, the Western audience is very happy for it and is very glad we got to read it. And I will also do a shout out. So I, I totally cheat because I try to get through a lot of books to stay on top of the different authors I interview. So I read some of this with my eyes, but I read most of it with my ears and the narrator you had, I don't know if you've had a chance to listen to your narrators on the audible, but just knocked it out of the park. So if you want a Chinese drama, it's like a Chinese radio drama getting to have it read. So also I appreciated that because as a Western reader who doesn't have familiarity with a lot of the names, the pronunciations, it helped listening to it because I, I will just say, if I mess up any of the pronunciations when I'm saying it, it's because I messed them up. But if I get any of them right, it's because the narrator put them in my ear because I would have looked at it and gone, no, I'm not going to get that right. Even though there are only like three letters wrong, I'm probably still saying them wrong. So like two is, Z-H-U, and I would not have gotten that. Mm. Oh, man, I was so lucky with the narrator. So one of the great things that, yeah, we have said about writing Asian fantasy, and now there is this mini boom of uh, Asian authors who are breaking through finally after, you know, many decades of sort of gatekeeping against these kind of stories that did not fit a particular Western mold. Uh, the idea that we're also creating jobs for other Asians, you know, in the business is like fantastic. You know, I have a friend who sold their TV rights, you know, an Asian scriptwriter. And then, you know, when I, they said, we're going to do an audio book. They're like, here are a bunch of amazing queer Asian audio narrators. I'm like, oh, this is fantastic. There's a you list. Know. Thank you. <laughs> There's a list. There's several. And, you know, I have created a job for more Asians. So, you know, we're all sort of pissing each other up. Kind of like amazing and Natalie does a great job yeah uh, I have not listened to it but my partner is an audiobook reader and he's like ah oh, when like she did the ghost like I got goosebumps it's creepy but, or chicken skin yeah chicken skin yeah like, yeah instead of goosebumps do we do chicken skin and I actually admit I I have actually heard her read other books before and I follow her on Instagram now. So it's, it's Natalie Nautis and Natus. I'm not sure how to pronounce her last name, but she also had done a book by Tori Eldridge. So I listened to her and I just love getting to hear her again. I'm going, all right. And now she has, she goes through the bookstore and goes, Oh, I read this one and this one and this one. And there's lots of books out there. So anyone who's an audiobook fan or looks at this and goes, this sounds fabulous. I have no time to read. Yes, you do because you're probably folding laundry like me. And then can still listen to something like this and enjoy it and have a Chinese radio drama in your ear. And it's less bloody when you're just listening to it. So you don't have to, to see people get stabbed or throat slit or any of that. But if you like that, then we still need to have the, the TV show version put out with as much gore as possible. Possibly the people who do the boys, they're really good at gore. <laughs> Just I'm a wimp. I don't like gore. Uh, everyone says this book is really violent. And I got to say, I personally no. do not agree. <laughs> I, was like, no. I keep it off screen. No one is flayed on screen. Yeah, you I'm say like, but there is a flaying. I'm like, I don't see it. You mention it, but you're not sitting there going, and then this strip of flesh was removed. And then this, and I don't, I don't. Thank I you. Not. Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> that's, that's my preference, but there are probably some readers going, you know, I could have enjoyed that flaying scene a little bit more. What is wrong with you people? <laughs> oh, I mean, you can, what's it? Red Sorghum by Mo Yan is like, has a several page long flaying scene. <laughs> I was just like, no, no. That turned, I know there's some people who don't like sexual scenes and will turn past that. I'll happily read a sexual scene, but I can skip the detailed flaying. Thank you very much. But, but it also explains, so you are a romance writer as far as your background. So you threw that in there and put that to good use. And I, I appreciate <laughs> that. I'm sitting a there. A lot of people have been so surprised. 
<laughs> they were like, oh, yeah, you, you didn't fade to black. I'm like, was I supposed to? <laughs> you know, I, I think um, I grew up writing on the internet as many people do these days. In fact, it's not even taboo to say, yeah, I wrote fan fiction. I wrote a lot of fan fiction. No, you just have to share uh, you what, your, to what your handle was so people can look that up because then they're like, oh, really? And, no. what fans, and what fandoms were you writing for? That's all. <laughs> Actually, people can figure it out, um, <laughs> which is quite alarming. Like, I just had to say three tidbits, and someone was like, I found your fanfic. I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> like, I have now just revealed my secret identity to no longer live in obscurity on the internet. I, know, but, I mean, everyone has sexuality in this really interesting way to explore character. I don't understand this whole, like, oh, literature or oh, fantasy. We should not, like, write the details. I'm like, People are having character moments while they're having sex because it's actually kind of a big thing to people, you know, for better or for worse. People like place a lot of like, you know, emotion and meaning onto this particular physical act between people. I'm going to explore it. Hmm. Well, you did it well. So I, no complaints that you had it in there, but I also don't remember reading a fantasy book that went as detailed, but I also read other places where it is as detailed. So for me, it wasn't, it wasn't out of, it wasn't pulling me out of it, but the fact that you did go to using it as a character point and relational when generally when I've read not so much in fantasy, but in science fiction, I will read scenes and they take me out of the drama because it isn't character. It just feels kind of self-indulgent on the part of the author. Like, Oh, I got to write some, some nasty sex in there. And it didn't, it didn't have anything to do with the rest of the plot. That's not the case here. So I, I appreciated how you handled it. Not just that you didn't fade to black, but that how you handled it as far as bringing in, it's not just gratuitous and it, it can be, and, but it wasn't for yours. So I appreciated how you handled that. And I just, there's a lot of, yeah, fantasy romance is having a moment now. Actually, there's a whole bunch of really awesome fantasy romances coming out and they have that romance perspective. But like, we will explore character in every way, you know, with every tool available to us. And like, sex is just one of those ways. So, uh, Freya Mask and Foz Meadows are two with like some fantasy romances coming up. Everybody go write those down. (laughs) Like, get, get those on your list if you're looking for the fantasy romance to come. But the, the other word, you keep using the word, the Asian diaspora. I know what the word diaspora means. I'm not sure everybody necessarily does, but diaspora means to be spread out, correct? Is that the, the best term of it? So you live in Australia, correct? Like you, you no longer are living in a place that is traditionally an Asian country. And you say you are also mixed race and that influenced this. How much would it, do you think, would it matter as far as you writing something that addresses a character who's mixed race? Because nobody in here is, but there's a lot of inter, I will say, intercultural and inter-ethnic groups because there are different ethnic groups within this who have different languages and different cultural traditions. How much did that influence what you were writing? I often say this book isn't actually about China at all. I mean, it's it's about the fantasy of China, but it's also very much like a diaspora work. It's about, I was really thinking about masculinity in Australia, like in the place that I grew up when I, you know, constructed a lot of the elements of this book. For instance, the Mongols versus the Chinese. It's not really about the historical Mongols versus the Chinese, you know, I wasn't trying to write a scholarly treatise on, you know, inter-ethnic relations back in the day. I have no scholarly (laughs) knowledge of this historical period. You know, I just did enough to make it seem like it could be plausible. But it's really about 
you know, a society that constructs masculinity in a certain way and then excludes the masculinity as um, practiced as you know, seen by others. Like Australian white masculinity is framed in a very particular way and it is often very physical. Um, you know, the ideal Australian man is kind of your Chris Hemsworth, you know, right? <laughs> like Chris Hemsworth. Funny and big and sporty. <laughs> so you know, MCU is usually sport. my reference point. So when you said ideal Australian, I went Chris <laughs> Hemsworth. Yeah, you know, Chris, he's our great export. You know, uh, and I will not say that he did not influence his book in certain ways, or Thor at least. Uh, yeah, so you have this construct of this, like, you know, perfect man, and then it absolutely excludes the masculinity that, like, you know, Chinese culture has created, which, um, you know, Chinese men, Asian men in Australia are often, like, derided as, like, feminine, insufficiently physical, like, you know, to have your masculinity, like, not even recognized, have your gender, like, sneered at. It's like huge. It's a huge thing, um, and you know. So that's sort of what I was drawing on when you have the Mongols, this warrior class, you know, versus you know they have suppressed Chinese culture and coming up through that, you have the bitter scholar figure. You know, for instance, who's like, had I been born three hundred years earlier when Chinese ruled China, I would have been seen as the pinnacle of masculinity. I am accomplished. I am smart. I create art. I can. <laughs> You know, I'm, you know, the 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 perfect educated man yes. and the pinnacle of masculinity in my culture. And what you've done is taken that away from me, and now I'm a second class citizen. You don't even see me as worthy, you know, of of my gender. So that kind of all found its way in there in a very sort of like metaphorical kind of way. Uh yeah, and he is mixed race. That character, the bit of scholar, so he is actually half Chinese, half Mongol. He's got a lot of feels about it. He's pretty angry. <laughs> well, okay, and Tori, Tori's watching. Natalie Nautis is extraordinary. I can't wait to hear what she does with the Hong Kong characters in my new book. So she she definitely knows. She's got characters who are going to come in with different accents and not just having all the characters sound the same, like generic Asian accent. We would rather not have that. We'd like to have accurate things to go for you're in hong kong you're going to sound different than an american character or a character who has you know obviously australian's going to sound a little different and i'm sure we could just have you go on forever because jennifer's going to come back on and say how sexy it sounds when you say things like flayed <laughs> alive because that's that's her thing she's a gothic horror writer so she's probably back to tell oh. more about the <laughs> flayed people i'd like that that sounds pretty good but i love that you were able to take something like your own upbringing and your own culture and then transpose it into this other setting and show the analogs there as far as the cultural relations and still how it is here. I mean, we have an, an Asian diaspora here in America that is spread out. I'm in California. So I was raised with a lot of Asian friends. Half my family is Asian. My sister's husband is Korean. So I have mixed race nieces. And so I understand some of this stuff as far as like, I can't find things that look like them because they're just wiped out of society. That's great. Yeah. Can we work on that? So I know for me, I personally loved having the opportunity to read a book where it's okay. We're going to take on some of these things and some of the, the ideas and say, maybe just because they're one culture says, this is the ideal. That's not going to just translate across every culture. And that that isn't necessarily something we should embrace just without even a question to it. Hmm. Oh, yeah, it's it's complicated creating culture, uh, creating a society out of multiple cultures for sure. And I don't think anyone has the answers. And 
this is why I don't write nonfiction. Because I'm just like, ah, fiction is like this great repository for all your feelings. So you can just like throw all these topics and issues in and explore them on the individual level. But you don't have to make any sweeping statements about let's solve racism. No. So every time someone asks about my opinion piece about being part of the Asian diaspora, I'm like, no, thank you. I wrote all my issues out in fictional form, uh, but in a way that you can't tie me down to any particular statement. You're like, I didn't say that. That was Chu Changba. So don't, yep. don't blame me. That, that's what the character said, and I do not condone it. I do not condone murder. <laughs> well, and getting to what your characters are saying, this is the first in a series. Is that correct? It is. There are going to be two books, and the second book will be out whenever I finish it because pandemic writing is very slow. It is. But, um, yeah, the second book is fun. And, I, I, it, you know, it's the conclusion of the race to the throne. So, obviously, there's going to be a lot more twisting and turning and stabbing, and we'll get to see different points of view from a, a few different characters who, who might, might reach the throne first. Who knows? Well, and Tori says, she who became the sun looks freaking amazing. It is. Read it. Listen to it with your eyes. Do a little bit of both like I did. But I, I hate to say it, but we are out of time. So I would love to just thank everyone who's been watching. And thank you, Shelly Parker-Chan, for coming and joining me bright and early. It, it's afternoon for us, but it's already the future in Australia. Thank you so much for, for joining us. I can't wait to read the next book when it comes out. So just message me when it's coming. Keep writing it. I know pandemic writing. No pressure. I will. I will never be. I'll just drop it in will. your inbox. Yeah. No. Just say it's coming. Just. Just let me know. I mean, let me know that it's. It hasn't just flitt flittered away in the middle of the pandemic because I know a lot of our brain cells have done that. I know mine have at least. But I just want to say thank you for joining us. I would love to have you back when you write the next one, or or just to chat about other stuff. And, possibly Marvel movies. After you see Shang-Chi, we, we can talk about that too. But this has been a copy-written podcast of the Global Authors on the Air Radio Network. Thank you to Roman Sirotin, my producer, and Pam Stack, our executive producer. I am excited to have us come back in October, October 19th, where we will have David R. Slayton, the author of White Trash Warlock and Trailer Park Warlock, coming on to talk about his new release. Thank you, everybody, and we will see you again in October. 